This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius. A bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Amy Barrett, Editorial Assistant at sciencefocus.com. Today I'm talking to Professor Russell Foster, a leading expert on circadian neuroscience and the author of the newly published book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionise Your Sleep and Health. He'll be speaking to me about our internal timekeeper and how it links to our daily experiences throughout the episode. First, I wonder if you could just tell me what actually is the body clock? Well, it's great to join you. Um, I think you can think of the body clock as as an internal biological representation of a day, ticking away within the brain, which is which contains the master clock, which then coordinates the rhythmic activity of essentially every cell in the body. I mean, if we think about what biology needs to do, it needs to d- d- deliver the right materials in the right concentration to the right tissues at the right time of day, and it's that temporal structure in both space and time uh, that the circadian system provides. And without it, uh, essentially everything falls into chaos. It's a bit like an orchestra. You've got sort of this this conductor in the brain coordinating rhythmic activity, and then all the members of the orchestra scattered throughout the organs and the tissues of the body. And uh, if they're all working together, if they're all sort of singing from the same hymn sheet, then you have a, a beautiful symphony. But of course, if they're all playing at a slightly different time, you have this this cacophony. And so it's all about doing the right thing at the right time and fine-tuning our biology to the very demands of the the the, the twenty. 24-hour revolution of the Earth on its axis and the, and the dynamic changes that we see in light and temperature. 
So is it that there is one kind of location, one conductor somewhere in our brain that we can see on a scan and, you know, pinpoint that is our body clock? Well, that's how we used to think about it. We used to think that this this structure deep within the brain in the hypothalamus uh, called the supra chiasmatic nuclei. It's a paired structure consisting of about 50,000 cells. And it sits um, in the brain where the optic nerves go into the brain and fuse and form what's called the optic chiasm. And it, it sits there. And we thought, right, that's it. It's this, this, this driver forcing 24-hour rhythmicity onto every biological system throughout the body. And then what was discovered is that cells throughout the body. They were taken out. They were put in a dish and they showed 24-hour oscillations. And I have to, I, I remember when that, those data were first presented at a meeting and there was like an audible gasp because, you know, we come from thinking that the circadian rhythm was this network property of cell-cell interaction to the realization that it's actually a subcellular molecular process and that's contained within the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And then this revolution that every cell in the body is capable of generating a circadian oscillation. Uh, so, so yes, I mean, it's, it's been a really exciting journey. I mean, my, my career has sort of spanned uh, all these wonderful discoveries, um, which we occasionally have been able to contribute to. <laughs> and you mentioned kind of the word circadian. Can you just sort of tell me what that actually means? Yeah, it is, so circadian means about a day. Um, and and these, this is a biological property. Um, and, and you define a circadian rhythm because the the oscillation, the 24-hour change, whether it's in gene expression or, or electrical activity or indeed behavior, will continue under constant conditions. So the clock will continue to tick. So it's not a driven rhythm as a result of, for example, the change in light intensity at dawn and dusk. So that's one of its key properties. But it's no good having a clock unless it can be set to the external world. And so the second property is that it can be entrained or locked on to a, a cycle generated by the earth. And that's usually the light-dark cycle. And then the third property uh, of a clock uh, has to be that it's temperature compensated, which means that despite huge changes in environmental uh, temperature, the clock will continue to tick with a period of about 24 hours. If it didn't, in, for example, insects or plants, it would mean that there would be no no real biological time. And of course, this is this is what uh, the clockmakers in the uh, in the seventeenth and eighteenth century were trying to resolve: uh, a mechanical clock which continued to tick despite huge change, changes in external temperature. And of course, biology solved this billions of years ago. <laughs> so this is something that's not just in humans; everything on the planet will have this. More or less. And, and, you know, we used to think, oh, well, it's just multicellular organisms. And, and, and it's probably just sort of like vertebrates. And, and, and then, of course, uh, actually, we, we knew that it was plants because one of the early observations by de Maria uh, was on a plant. And, and he, he took mimosa plants. And these are the plants which, if you touch the leaves, they fold up. And he noticed that they would open and close. And he put these mimosa plants in a cupboard and um, showed that under constant darkness, this opening and closing of the leaf would continue. Um, and that was actually the first real demonstration of a rhythm that persisted under, under, under you know, complete uh, darkness. And, and so from plants and all the invertebrates, all the vertebrates, um, and we thought that, oh, it won't be bacteria, it won't be the, the prokaryotes, because, you know, they're just too simple. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, a few years ago, yes, bacteria were shown to have circadian rhythms as well. So it seems to be 
uh, almost a ubiquitous feature of life on Earth. In fact, looking for life on Mars, some of the experiments have involved have evolved, some of the experiments have involved looking for um, uh, uh, oscillations that are similar to the Martian day, which is about twenty four hours and thirty six minutes or so. And so, are our clocks twenty four hours on the dot? No, that's a great question because, in fact. On average, they're about 24 hours and 10 minutes or so. Um, that's an average. Uh, and, and that's the more recent estimates. The early estimates, which are most often quoted in, in, in textbooks and things, is that the human clock is 25, hour, 25 hours. That seems to have been a, a, a slight mistake. So on average, they're 24 hours and 10 minutes. But some people are much longer and some people are much shorter. Uh, so there's a variation across the human species. Interestingly enough, we're quite variable as a species. If you look at mice or, or plants or, or whatever, um, they're much, much tighter. And one interesting question is, why are we? Why do we have such a range of, of circadian periods? Periods? What, what well, yes, the, the period is essentially uh, the, 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 the peak to trough change. Um, and so our clocks are around about 24 hours and 10 minutes. So that's the, 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 the oscillation. Whereas some people, their period could, could be, um, in some extreme cases, uh, 26 hours or even 27 hours. Um, and, and that's been associated, those very long clocks uh, have been associated with changes in the, mole the molecular clockwork, the, actually the machinery within the cell that makes the clock tick. So if it is sort of independent of light and dark, or it could be, could that mean that really as humans, you know, we could just decide, or I could decide that I wanted to sleep during the day and work during the night and, you know, my body would adapt and my body clock would do that for me? No, absolutely not. <laughs> And I think that's the that's the thing. I mean, the arrogance of being human, and we're, we're all the same. You know, we believe we can do whatever we like at whatever time of day. And of course, we have this temporal structure embedded within us, and you can't. And in, and indeed, I remember all oh, good twenty years ago chatting to the chief, the he the head of the Confederation of British Industry, and he was saying, "Right, you know, we're going to solve the economic problems of the UK. We're going to run a, 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 a whole industry on a on a twenty four you know, 24-7 basis. So we won't have lots more buildings in, you know, in London and, and we won't have the rush hour. And, and he generally thought that, that the body clock would adapt to the demands of working at night. And it simply doesn't. 97% um, of night shift workers do not adapt to the demands of, of working at night. Um, and that relates to the really very and fundamental importance of light in setting the clock. So you know, the light-dark cycle sets this internal rhythm to the external world. And uh, what happens for night shift workers is that they're under relatively dim light during the workplace. And then they experience bright light on the journey home or on the journey going into work. And the clock will always defer to the brighter light signal as being daytime. And so the body clocks of night shift workers do not shift. So they have to they're having to override this huge, you know, biological drive to saying, now you should be asleep. Uh, and yet they're essentially being forced to work. And to override this, this body clock, you have to activate the stress axis. And what that does is essentially throw our biology out of kilter by, by forcing activity upon an entire biology, which uh, is prepared for sleep. So what impact does that have 
you know, long term, because obviously, you know, you can understand sometimes I would stay up through the night to finish a university assignment, but that was just a one-off. Whereas people who are doing this for years, you know, even decades, what is that doing to them? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, so the World Health Organization has now classified night shift work as a probable carcinogen. Um, and we should dig a bit deeper into some of the consequences of night shift work um, or just, you know, working out of kilter with our internal biology. So short term, uh, there can be a big impact upon our emotional responses. So you see increased fluctuation in mood, irritability, anxiety, loss of empathy, the failure to pick up those social signals from friends, family, and, and, and one's work colleagues. Loss of empathy, uh, again, is a really interesting feature. Risk-taking and impulsivity. I mean, it's a, you know, doing stupid and unreflective things is, is, a, is a, a classic um, uh, impact upon our emotions. There's a greater tendency to take stimulants such as caffeine or indeed uh, something uh, less, less legal than caffeine. And then also to use alcohol as a sedative to wind down uh, from from uh, uh, th these issues. Uh, cognitive responses can be impaired, so ability to multi the ability to multitask goes down. Uh, memory consolidation really falls apart quickly. Attention, concentration that th th that's something that really fails um, as a result of uh, um, night shift work and disrupted uh, sleep wake cycles. One's communication skills, decision making skills. Uh, all uh, uh, fall apart. So they're the relatively short-term effects that many of us have, a, have um, experienced as, as a result of working on those, those papers when we should have been a bit better prepared. Um, but, but I think it's the, it's the more serious chronic impact that now has, has come to light. So daytime sleepiness and microsleeps um, are kind of obvious ones, but they're, they're, they're exaggerated by long-term night shift work. Um, so, for example, so a recent study has shown that 57% of junior doctors had either had a crash or a near miss on the journey home after the night shift. I mean, this is really serious stuff. Cardiovascular disease is very much associated um, with um, night shift work. Um, altered stress responses, uh, infection, and, and lowered immunity. I mean, one night of no sleep can reduce the effectiveness of natural killer cells by something of the order of 20 to 30%. I mean, quite, quite extraordinary. And of course, those natural killer cells are really important in, um, in, in preventing uh, cancer spread, you know, identifying uh, tumor cells. And of course, you find higher rates of cancer. Very important studies on uh, Danish night shift nurses showing higher rates of colorectal cancer and breast cancer in that group. And, and then we go back to that statement earlier, the World Health Organization saying that night shift work um, is now being classified as a probable carcinogen. Metabolic abnormalities, um, obesity, type 2 diabetes, Type 2 diabetes, very common in night shift workers compared to day shift workers. And of course, um, psychosis uh, and depression. So mental health problems can be exacerbated by sleep-wake disruption. So I think this is, you raise a really important point because you just tend to think, oh, well, I'm just feeling tired at an inconvenient time. But actually what we now know as a result of research over the past five to 10 years is that circadian rhythm and sleep disruption impacts upon every domain of health. And that's why we need to take it so very seriously. And is 
this kind of risk just down to the sleep disruption element or are there other parts of the circadian rhythm that you know perhaps we're not really thinking about when it comes to our daily cycles yeah the, the problems in night shift work particularly are a misaligned clock so we're trying to do things when the body is prepared to do something else um, and the second thing is is, is accumulative sleep uh, loss and sleep disruption. And those are the two whammies uh, that really hit a night shift uh, worker very, very hard. Now, um, as I say, short term, so for many of us who sort of try and throw that all nighter, then we're working against an internal biology. We haven't got accumulated sleep debt at that stage. And of course, the number of years doing night shift work uh, exaggerates the, the severity of these conditions. And you talked about um, variability in kind of our, our sort of times from 24 hours up to sort of 27 hours. Um, but what other kind of differences do, say, yourself or myself, uh, what do we you know, have different when it comes to our um, body clock? Yeah, I think it's a, a really fascinating question. And, and, and we're getting to the, the, the subject of one's chronotype, which is one's body clock type. Uh, and and uh, whether you're a morning person, uh, an intermediate type, uh, or a late person. Uh, and I think this, this is, it's a really very important point because we are very different. We can have a huge range of chronotypes across the population. And one's chronotype, morning, uh, intermediate or evening type is defined upon sort of three, three or four criteria. The first is one's genetics. So do you have changes in some of the fundamentally important clock genes, which either speed up or slow down the clock? And what's really ex extraordinary is that we now have examples where tiny changes in some of those genes and the proteins they encode will translate into whether you're a morning type or an evening type. And I just think that's just so cool. It's in fact one of the best examples we've got of how how genes encoding their protein products ultimately change behavior. I mean, just one amino acid change uh, can change you know, morningness to eveningness. Just just so cool. The second is is our development. So uh, from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. Now that peaks in our late teens, early 20s. And then there's a slow move to want to go to bed a little bit earlier and earlier and earlier. The time you're in your late 50s, early 60s, you're wanting to get up and go to bed at about the time you did when you were 10. And on, and, and on average, that's about two hours earlier than when you were in your late teens and early 20s. So there's that change in development, but men and women are different. Men tend to uh, want to go to bed later for longer compared to women who peak in their, in their sort of lateness earlier than men, and they never get on average as late as men. And in fact, it's only by the time we get to about 55, 60 that men and women on average are getting up and going to bed at about the same time which I think is really intriguing. So there is that, that um, uh, uh, change. And, uh, and, and that's probably due to the circulating levels of um, the sex hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. So we've got our genetics, our development, whether, they're, whether we're male or female. But the fourth, which is so important, is how much morning versus evening light you see. Now, what we now know is that morning light will advance the clock. It will make you get up earlier and go to get, get up and, and go to bed earlier. Whereas evening light will make you uh, go to bed later and get up later. Now, when we were all agricultural workers, 
And in 1800, we were all agricultural workers, basically. We got a symmetrical exposure to morning and evening light. And so we were nudged backwards and forwards. And so we stayed basically aligned. We did a study a few years ago on university students around the world, in, in Munich, in Oxford, in, uh, in Perth, in Auckland, and the results were just amazing because it showed that the later the chronotype, the more of an owl you were, the more evening light versus morning light you got. And of course, the evening light delays the clock, whereas the morning light advances the clock. So by just sampling one bit of the light-dark cycle can, can shift you either uh, forward in time or back in time. It's a great problem for adolescents who, who struggle through the, the school week. Then they massively oversleep at the weekends, missing the morning light, which would advance their body clocks, but they get the afternoon-evening light, which then delays the clock. So, 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 so it's that fascinating interaction, as with so many elements of our biology, of genes and the environment, which ultimately give us our, our body clock type. I don't mean to sound, you know, in any way offensive here, but chronotypes are one of those things that I think a lot of people maybe associate because because maybe it just sounds like a horoscope type thing um you know it, it feels almost like it's one of those quizzes you know answer these five questions and we'll tell you whether you're a night owl you know how do we know that this is uh, you know not just um sort of what what we like to do yeah, and this is actually something game. regulated yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so the questionnaires that have been uh, developed to, to define whether you're a morning or an evening type have been based and validated on uh, real life recordings about when people actually get up and go to bed and not only their activity but also hormonal levels because one's overt activity can be masked you can sort of set the alarm clock uh, and it'll make you get out of bed let's say at seven o'clock every morning but your underlying body clock might be different. So most of these, these surveys um, have had both a, an activity report, but also where the hormones, and, and in particular, a hormone from the pineal called melatonin, which is very tightly coupled to the body clock. So if you know where the peak of melatonin is, whether it's advanced or delayed, uh, you, you know where uh, an individual's chronotype is very accurately. In fact, we did some, some really interesting work a few years ago on on looking at the rest activity cycles of individuals who were blind. They have no eyes. And so they had no way of regulating their internal clock. So their clock was just drifting through time. And then we discovered this lady whose, um, whose rest activity was drifting through time. And then her husband, who was a long distance lorry driver, would come home. And it looked as though her, her circadian rhythms then became aligned to her husband. And we thought, wow, it's not just light. There are other factors here. Um, and then we also measured uh, her melatonin rhythm. And what we found is, although she had set her alarm clock to get up and go to bed at the same time her, as her husband, so her activity, her underlying circadian rhythms, her biology was actually drifting through time. And so, so you have to be very careful about getting enough data to be sure about whether it's a genuine circadian rhythm or it's actually being driven by some external cycle. There are some things that are controlled by our circadian rhythms that, you know, we might not think. So things like fertility, um, you know, energy and even things like digestion. Is that right? You know, this is all controlled by this one big conductor. I think that's what 
what I find so exciting is that it's all, you know, and of course it kind of makes sense. You know, we're, we're doing this fine tuning, delivering the right stuff at the right time to the right, you know, time of day. Um, and so it makes sense that all of our biology is being time stamped to a, to a, to a greater or lesser extent. And absolutely. Um, so where to start? I mean, let, let's start with um, uh, metabolism. And so when we um, eat, we'll have a... So when we eat, will will influence the sort of thing that's, that's, that that the body does with those calories. So when we're asleep, we're not taking in food, um, and of course to survive, we're mobilizing stored calories to, to drive our metabolism. During the day, we're we're moving around, we're taking in calories, and so we're we're using those 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 calories as as they're needed. But if you think about it, the metabolic status of somebody asleep and somebody awake is completely different. And so when we eat will influence what happens to those calories. So if we eat, some very nice studies have looked at the same calorie intake, the same glucose intake across the day, during the first part of the day to the lunchtime, um, those calories are metabolized and used. Whereas towards the late afternoon and evening, those calories tend to be stored as fat. So, so individuals who were trying to diet were given the same set of calories and they concentrated those calories in the morning or lunchtime or lunchtime in the evening. They lost more weight when they were in the first part of the day than the second part of the day. And it kind of makes sense because that's what the metabolism is doing. The, the really exciting new data, is, the really exciting new data as well is in the immune system. And so we now know that the immune system is turned up during the day, when we're sort of likely to encounter pathogens from either other people or moving around the environment, and turned down at night. And this has been shown in a number of interesting cases. So it started, as with most studies on mice, mice were infected with um, uh, a virus, either at the beginning of their activity phase or at the beginning of their sleep phase. Given at the beginning of the sleep phase, more mice became sick and ill uh, than, uh, than, than if the virus was given at the beginning of their activity, activity phase. And uh, similar sorts of findings have been found in humans, not least when to get vaccination. So uh, there was a study a few years ago now looking at the influenza vaccine, either first thing in the morning or late in the afternoon. The virus, um, sorry, the, the, the vaccination that was given in the morning produced an antibody response threefold greater in the morning compared to the afternoon. And, and you could ask, well, hang on, why isn't the immune system on full throttle all the time? And of course, we don't know, but my thought about this was that if we turned up the immune system and it was you know, aggressive all the time, we're more likely to um, trigger autoimmune responses. So by, by concentrating the effectiveness of the immune system during the day when we're most likely to encounter bacteria and viruses, we you know, we, we, we tune it up for then. Uh, and so we're both um, sort of saving resources, but also reducing the risk of, uh, of an of a overly aggressive immune system that would trigger an autoimmune response. Now, I don't know, but these are the sorts of ideas that one can play, play with. The other thing that's so interesting, though, is that if you are getting sort of sleep and circadian rhythm disruption, then the effectiveness of a vaccine becomes much worse. 
some very interesting studies compared individuals who were uh, very sleep restricted, only got four or five hours of sleep a night compared to what they would like, let's say seven, eight, nine. And their immune responses were far less effective uh, uh, than, than the fully rested individuals, which re- all this raises some very important aspects, I think, for our frontline night shift workers, our nurses and doctors. So knowing that you're more vulnerable to infection at night means that the sort of protective coverings that you need, should we should pay more attention to them, particularly at night. Um, knowing that uh, vaccination is is less effective when your sleep and, and, and circadian rhythm disrupted, then we should make sure our frontline staff are fully rested before. They shouldn't have done a string of night shifts, then become vaccinated. They should sort of be rested and then have their vaccination. And of course, we need to work out, not least for COVID-19, when is the most effective time to uh, deliver those, those, those vaccinations. So really interesting stuff. Again, basic biology, you know, phenomenology, all that's cool stuff, but with an amazing uh, translational uh, uh, potential. And so just to recap for anyone listening, um, what, what would you say the three things, the three things that make the biggest difference to our body clock would be? Well, first of all, getting morning light, because morning light is critically important in setting the internal day to the external world. Uh, and so that would be one key thing to do. And in terms of sleep, what time you sleep, how long you sleep, it's really important to appreciate that one shoe size doesn't fit all and that you as an individual um, need to work out for yourself what works best for you. And, and, and in a sense, so many people have become anxious by this stream of media saying, you must do this, you must do that. And, and within that context, I'd be very wary of sleep apps. Now, sleep apps are great for, for, for telling you roughly when you went to sleep, how many times you woke up in the night, and roughly when you finally woke up. But telling you you've had good sleep or deep sleep and all the rest of it, the algorithms just aren't good enough in most cases to, to give you that feedback. So rely upon yourself, embrace the sleep that you get, and, and don't get worried about some of the stuff that's being told to you by a sleep app. It's worth bearing in mind that none of the sleep societies have endorsed any of the commercially available uh, apps, and none of them, to my knowledge, are FDA approved as medical devices. So, you know, be aware you're going to be different um, and then try and work out for yourself what's the best thing for you. So, so first of all, morning light, which is really important at setting the internal day to the external day. Um, the second I would say would be um, be careful about caffeinated drinks. Um, don't, you know, they're really good at alerting us. And so I, I, for example, try not to drink any caffeinated drinks beyond two o'clock in the afternoon and certainly not close, close to bedtime. The other thing is that short-term use of sleeping tablets, um, fine, but it's very, uh, it's really important to appreciate that sleeping tablets do not provide a biological mimic for sleep. They essentially, um, they, uh, they're sedatives. And uh, so they can actually inhibit some of the really important things going on whilst we sleep. So again, short-term use, fine, but don't become dependent upon them. So there will be three things of many <laughs> that, that one, could, one could embrace to improve one's sleep and, and one's circadian timing. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Professor Russell Foster. If you want to know more about The Body Clock, check out his new book, Lifetime, 
Or to hear him tell me more about how we can manage our circadian rhythms, head over to Instant Genius Extra, available only on Apple Podcasts. The May issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.